Welcome. I'm Sebastian Mafud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of En Route Books and Media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the always humbly and originally named Pat Flynn Show. I'm really excited for this episode. I think this is going to be a very special episode for many reasons that we're going to get into. I am joined uh, by Dr. J.P. Moreland, who is a professional philosopher. He's got more degrees than I think I'm, I think actually the same number of degrees as I have fingers on my hands. Is that, <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> JP? Well, you must have some fingers cut off, I think. <laughs> what is it for then? Is it, is it, is it, yeah, it's for, yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, um, as I was talking to you before we, before we, uh, started recording, I've been a fan of your work for, uh, a long time for many reasons, specifically your work in philosophy of mind has always been uh, of great interest to me. And then you came out with this really wonderful book on, of all things, anxiety, which I, I'd also told you that it's something that I have both a personal and yeah. long family history with. So I'm like, well, yeah, my, my, yeah. My, my goodness, I, I absolutely have to have Dr. Moreland on. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to, to join me. I'm really glad to have you here. Well, I tell you, it's a delight to be here with you, Pat, and I'm looking forward to our chat. So uh, why don't we just start with some of the you know uh, formalities, if you will, for people who might not be familiar with your work and, and what you've done. What's the, what's the sort of brief biography that we can, we can offer people? Well, I came to Christ at the University of Missouri as a chemistry major my junior year in 1968 and uh, joined Campus Crusade staff for 10 years and uh, took, went to Dallas Seminary and then took an MA and a PhD in philosophy under Dallas Willard at USC ultimately because I felt like there was a great need for Christians to be able to speak into the secular culture intelligently and winsomely. And so I, I've, I've tried to, I've taught philosophy coming up on my 30th year. I've been a Jesus follower for 51 years, and I have had a life of anxiety and some depression that I inherited uh, a disposition to from my mom's side of the family. And uh, the book Finding Quiet is about uh, what, I, what I found that really, really helped me get out of it. And uh, so I teach philosophy now. And my mate, uh, Pat, my main calling is to encourage, uh, embolden, and equip people uh, to know uh, why they believe what they believe and to encourage them that that being a Jesus follower or a disciple is the smartest thing you can do with your life. So I was on a podcast yesterday with, uh, with um, a friend of mine, and I told him that you were coming on, and he was so excited because he said that he heard a talk of yours. This was years ago. And b- before he heard you, you talk, he, he said he never heard anybody talk intelligently about religion before. And you, mm-hmm. you, you so inspired him uh, that he now is finishing his master's in, in philosophy. And oh, hoping, no way. Oh, yeah, hoping, hoping to carry that on. So I just wanted to pass that along to you. I thought that was a really Oh, man, that's cool. Thank you so much. But uh, so I, I, I want to focus a, lot, a good amount on your new book and, and anxiety and mental health. But uh, I mean, I can't have you on and not talk philosophy of, of mind. I mean, that would, that would be... Yes. That would be egregious. I, I can't not do that. Yeah. But, but there's also, I think, a really important connection 
between philosophy of mind and having the right conception of the human person and then how we go about treating mental health and anxiety and, and all that. And, and you make that really uh, clear in your book. And I think that's really important because I know even in my life, as I was kind of making my philosophical journey, um, there were certain mistakes that I made in trying to heal my anxiety and, and various bouts of depression mm-hmm. because I think mm-hmm. I, I held to a certain conception of what a human is, what a self is that just, it just wasn't correct. Yes. It kind of blocked out, I would say certain, uh, treatment paths, uh, because I thought that they, they didn't align, uh, philosophically with what That's I right. So I'm sure you can probably articulate what I'm trying to say a little bit better. <laughs> oh, Pat, absolutely, because you're not at all unusual in this regard. I think the Christian community uh, in general has just not had a clear understanding of, of the human person. And the reason this isn't just a theoretical issue, as you pointed out, is that uh, without a clear model of what we are, uh, then our practical application is going to be confused, and it could be off and uh, and in a direction that that keeps us from accessing help that would follow from a clear model of the human person. And so, my, my in my view, in chapter two of Finding Quiet, I try to lay this out, but that we are uh, uh, souls, and our souls have different faculties in them, or sets of abilities, the mind, the heart, uh, I mean, the mind, the will, the emotions, the spirit are all faculties of the soul, like the soul is a, a chest of drawers, and uh, each faculty is a compart- is a specific drawer. There's a sock drawer, and there's a t-shirt drawer, and so on, and the mind is the drawer that contains thoughts and beliefs, and the the faculty of emotion is the drawer that contains uh, your sensations and your your feelings and so on. But thus, while we are embodied, the soul is extremely uh, dependent on and interacts with our body. It, the, the soul has developed eyes to allow us to see. And so if our eyes are poked out, we're not going to be able to see, even though the faculty of sight in the soul is still operative. Uh, By the same token, um, uh, the the mind uses the brain uh, uh, to think, and by the way, the heart muscle, interestingly. And and, uh, we, we use the brain and the heart muscle for emotions. And so what we've learned, and I'll close with this, is that if there is if your brain chemistry or if if there is something uh, that that has been developed in your nervous system or your heart muscle that is a habitual uh, a trigger for negative thoughts and negative emotions, then you're going to be depressed and you're going to be anxious and uh, similarly. Not only can your brain affect your your feelings and mind, but your your mind can affect your brain because if you think um, good, solid thoughts, whatever's true, lovely, and so on, as Paul says, if you think on those kinds of things and just think half full for a couple of three weeks, they'll do it. They can do a brain scan, and 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 you have actually restructured. Uh, the, 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 the neurons in your brain and your brain chemistry, and they've shown this on brain scans. It's 
called neuroplasticity. The brain has the ability to change its structure if we, by thinking, <laughs> by just thinking different thoughts. And so it's an amazing uh, thing. What this opens up is uh, uh, the possibility that that uh, medications, uh, anxiety and depression medications from a doctor or a psychiatrist could be extremely helpful. Uh, there and they are extremely helpful. They do have side effects, and for some people, they don't work. And so, you should always check with the doctor and be under their care. But because our brain and our our emotions are affect one another, if your brain is broken, then you need to fix it so that you can get to work on your spiritual life and your emotions more effectively. And that's where the medications. It would be in a practical application of this model of the human person. Yeah, that's, and I think we're trying to avoid sort of two ends of the extreme here. One is a sort of a reductionist physicalism or a materialism. Absolutely. Which would try to deny uh, that there's any such thing as a soul altogether. But on the other hand, it's, it may be something more like a Gnosticism or an idealism, which says that, that it holds a very low view of, of the body and, and only emphasizes the mind and, and thoughts. And I think what's really powerful and correct about your book is you're saying, no, we are composite entities. We are embodied, but we are still a soul. So if there's a physical, if there's a physical problem, it makes sense to seek a physical solution. But at the same time, if there's there's a spiritual problem, we need a spiritual solution. If there's a mental problem, we need them. And it, it was just so refreshing to see that that comprehensive take, but let's spend another minute because, you know, maybe somebody's here is, is skeptical and, and they're, and they're okay. listening um, and they think, well, you know what, maybe I do think we're just sort of electric meat, you know, maybe, maybe I don't really believe in a soul. I think you're probably the guy to ask to, I know you've got all kinds of arguments, but what do you think is the best case for somebody uh, who might be coming from a, a reductionist standpoint? What is the best case or series of arguments to help somebody understand that we really we really uh, are more than just the, the, the chemical interactions, right? Yes. Uh, I'd make two quick points. Uh, the first is when I, I lectured uh, at the National Institute of Health to about 130 neurosciences and uh, research biologists. I was invited, and I, I the first point I argued was that when it comes to the nature of consciousness, what is consciousness? And is there, what is the thing that has consciousness? Is it the brain, the body, or a soul? I said that the discoveries of neuroscience have absolutely nothing to do with the question. The only thing neuroscience can do is help us understand dependency relationships between the soul and the brain. But they can't say anything about what, uh, whether or not there is a soul. And so, and I got no pushback on that. And so, I want to say that people who think neuroscience has shown that there isn't a soul, they just misunderstand the limitations of neuroscience, which is just to establish correlations between consciousness and brain states and how they relate to one another. That's all neuroscience can do. Mm-hmm. So the issue is a philosophical one. Is there a soul or not? And there's so many, the case is kind of overwhelming, in my opinion. Uh, for example, I think we all know that we have free will. Occasionally, at least. I mean, I, I sometimes I do things and I'm responsible for what I did. And the only way I'm responsible is because I had a choice to, to, to not do what I did do. I was free and it, it was up to me. But if I'm just my brain and my nervous system, then I am completely determined 
by my biochemistry. And there is no such thing as freedom. Only if I am something other than uh, uh, electrolyzed meat could I possibly have free will. Another, another argument that I think is very, very good is that there is something true about me that is not true about my brain or body. And that is that I'm the kind of thing that could be, be disembodied after death. Now, I'm not saying I am disembodied after death, although I do think that the case for life after death is overwhelmingly strong. But when people uh, look at Dateline or 2020, and there's going to be a show on near-death experiences, for example, 99% of the people will say, look, you know, look, I'm, I'm skeptical of these things, but I'll grant you they might be true. And I'll allow the evidence to settle the issue. Well, nobody's going to do that if there's a show on Dateline of, that they've discovered square circles in Montana. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you know, I don't think they're, I'm skeptical, but I'm willing to see the evidence for square circles in Montana. People know ahead of time that that's impossible because it's contradictory. Mm-hmm. Now, the claim that I might exist disembodied, that there's something true with me, Namely, that I have the property of, of being possibly disembodied is, makes me different from my brain and body because not only will my brain and body never exist in a disembodied state, but they couldn't possibly exist in a disembodied state. I have no idea what it means to say there is a disembodied brain or a disembodied body. It seems to me that the brain and body are essentially physical. Mm-hmm. So they can't exist disembodied, but I can. I at least have I at least could. That means that I have a potential. Maybe I exist disembodied that my brain and body doesn't. And so this doesn't prove life after death, but what it shows is I can't be my brain and body because there's something true of me that's not true of them. And that's that's the old that's Leibniz's law, isn't it? Right. If A equals B, then whatever is true of A must also be true of B. Absolutely. In, in Absolutely. Inclu- including anything that we could predicate of A. So if there's if yeah. there's a, if there's a, right. Mm-hmm. So if there's a situation that that we can even conceive where something could be true yes. of me, such as being disembodied, that isn't true of 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 B or my body, then it then A does not in fact equal B. Is I find that's that right. I find that argument that, that's right. Mm-hmm. It's a powerful argument, and it really has never been dealt with uh, adequately. Yeah. So, uh, by by the way, speaking of near death experiences, haven't you done a fair amount of of looking into that yourself? I have. Mm-hmm. And any, I've got a ton of research on it. Any any particular insights that you think would be? Uh, oh yeah, there's no question they're real. Uh, this it's beyond reasonable doubt. Um, the evidence is kind of overwhelming. Uh, uh, the best book to read uh, for just a good overall case for the evidence for life after death is uh, Jeffrey Long's book, uh, the Evidence of the Afterlife. Uh, but a lot of people think, well, gosh, you know, these things uh, contradict the Bible. And uh, the truth of the matter is that over 95% of near-death experiences worldwide which numbers in the close to 300 million, and there are at least 14 million people in America that have had them. Um, John Burke's book, um, Imagine Heaven, 
best book on the subject I've read, I think shows beyond reasonable doubt that what people think make these a contradictory to scripture, in fact, aren't contradictory to scripture, and that these near-death experiences are very, very compatible with biblical teaching about the afterlife. The main piece of evidence that these are real is that people, when they die and leave their bodies, discover information about things in the room next to the, to where they died or in the floor above them or procedures that were going on they couldn't know, all kinds of things. They discover facts that are later verified by the nurses and doctors or eyewitnesses and that are sometimes in, actually in the medical charts uh, that they could not have known if they had just had a oxygen deprivation to the brain or something like that. There is absolutely no naturalistic explanation for how these people who were brain dead, they should have had no consciousness at all, gain knowledge of things that were in other locations or, or in places that they could not have known. Yeah, it's incredible. The the I've, I haven't done a heavy amount of research into it, but I've done I've done some, and I've uh, I've looked at both both your work. That's how I knew about it, and uh, another fr- a friend of mine uh, who's done a, a good amount of looking into this. And and the one that really really gets me are the cases of people who who are who are who are congenitally blind. Absolutely, they're born blind. Yeah. Oh man, and how you could even conceive of giving a naturalistic naturalistic explanation for that is I just don't think that you that you can. So anyway, thanks for thanks for entertaining these these arguments, Doctor. You're welcome, Moulin. Pat. You're welcome. I, I think it's so important, and I think that's such a great contribution of your book is we need the right conception of the human person so that way we can start to to seek effective treatment habits for mental yes. health because if we're pushing away the physical, we're obviously physical. That could be a problem if we're pushing away the mental or the spiritual because we're we, we obviously have mental and spiritual components that can be a problem as well so for those of you who are wondering well why the heck did we just you know kind of dive into some you know maybe somewhat technical philosophy there i think that this is important for the conversation and i I think you would probably agree with that right well i think you're absolutely right and i want to assure the readers that in finding quiet i i tell my own story about what happened to me but then when i go into uh well what is a human person and, and how does this uh what does this imply about attacking anxiety and depression? I want people to understand that I try to make this clear and simple and not technical, and that there's a real practical application to it so that people don't need to be afraid they won't be able to understand it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really great, and I think it's 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 something that is unfortunately missing from a lot of anxiety wor- uh, workbooks and and uh, help programs out there. Um, which again was part of the reason I was so excited to see that you put something out <laughs> on this. Well, thank you. So Pat, if you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, Doctor Moran, I think it might be helpful to people maybe to hear a bit of your personal story. So we kind of got the academic sure. side. We know you're a professional philosopher, but you you obviously yeah. have have dealt with this and struggled with this. So. Yeah, sure. I'd love to. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was born with a genetic predisposition to general anxiety disorder. My and I know that because uh, my the whole side of my mom's family were on medications. Uh, my grandfather was a nervous wreck. My daughter, that looks like me, <clears throat> has has anxiety. <clears throat> my daughter, that looks like my wife, doesn't. So it's there was a genetic predisposition 
that doesn't determine me to be anxious, but it does make it an inclination and it makes it harder for me to not be anxious than the average person. Mm-hmm. Combine that with the fact that I, I observed my mother being a nervous, anxious wreck uh, until I left home, went to college, and my father died when I was a very, very young boy. I was had, I had trauma, and I learned how to be anxious by my family of origin. One of the things I point out in the book is that a lot of anxiety, not all of it, but a good bit of it is a learned habit. And the good news is that you can unlearn that habit and replace it with other things by certain techniques uh, that are uh, biblically and scientifically based. And I show those in the book. But but continuing, I, I had anxiety. You know, I was kind of high strung and had anxiety for the rest of my life. And uh, But it wasn't overwhelming until... Uh, the end of the school year of 2003, I'd had a year from hell. I, I, this most stressful year I'd ever had. And I had a nine month sabbatical facing me. And at the end of the school year, uh, uh, in the middle of the night, I, I had a panic attack, which I didn't know what was going on. Hmm. And to make a long story short, that led to a seven month nervous breakdown where I was completely dysfunctional. I was curled up in a fetal position on the couch for a month. I had electricity going through my my brain down my back of my neck and into my chest. I was scared to death of irrational things like the phone ringing. Eventually, I got well, and for the next ten years, I was basically okay. Mm-hmm. But then it happened again in May of uh, 2013, ten years later, mm-hmm. and I had a five month nervous breakdown where. Uh, I started teaching in the fall, but I had to quit after two weeks and have other people teach my classes, and I was let go for that semester. Um, at that time, I believe the Lord spoke to me, and he said, I want you to use your research abilities to discover what you are to do to get rid of your anxiety with my spirit's help, and I want you to let people know about it. And so I tell you, Pat, I must have read 40 books, uh, secular psychology, uh, Christian spiritual formation, discipleship books. And what I did is I took, oh, I took what I learned and I boiled it down into four major practices and a set of other uh, ideas and information. And I began to practice these four practices and do a few of the other things. And after two years, well, first of all, after practicing these things for about two and a half months, um, I began to change in a way that my family noticed. Mm -hmm. Uh, Evidence for this is that after I had been practicing these things from about 2014 to August of 2015, These things were such habits that I was just kind of filled with joy and peace. Little did I know that in August of 2015, I was going to begin a two-year period where I would have eight surgeries. I had three different kinds of life-threatening cancers, and I had a pacemaker put in, and I had chemo and radiation. I had to wear a chemo pump uh, at, at home, and... 
Uh, if you, my wife is uh, walking right now, but when she gets back, she'll tell you that during that time, I was just full of peace and uh, joy, and I, I just wasn't bothered by it. Whereas, uh, you know, uh, five years earlier, this would have made me a nervous wreck. And doggone it, the things that I have put in the book actually worked. <laughs> Well, I couldn't imagine take- a greater test, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. just, I, got, I got anxious just reading about all the things you had to go through. It I- was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I wasn't afraid of dying where I used to be. And just, I mean, it was just kind of incredible. And my kids looked at me and they said, Dad, who the heck are you? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. I'm just, I've been doing these spiritual practices every day. And uh, I've, I'm, I've been on medication, and but I was before. But I think all this stuff has just really worked for me. And that's and and I the, the key thing that I one of the things I say in the book is do not waste your suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, every occasion in life is an occasion to be formed or deformed. And I don't want to be deformed by these breakdowns. I want to somehow let them form me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't want, and I wrote this book because I believe the Lord wanted me to, and he didn't want me to waste my suffering. And so that's the story. <laughs> well, I have to say your book has got me really excited for a number of reasons. And just to kind of give the, the quick background, your story yeah. is interesting because um, it seems like you kind of maybe suffered from a general anxiety for, for a long period of life. And then you, you had I that did. First, first panic attack. Um, I, yeah. I had my first full-blown panic, panic attack around like the fifth or sixth grade. So it hit me very oh, early. Oh, no. Yeah, very early on. And then I became pretty oh, much agor- agoraphobic uh, for about a year. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, through I actually they, I actually was on um, on medication for a while. And it, it was great. It, it helped me a lot. Uh, and then I Good. eventually, through various practices, came off it. And uh-huh. um and uh, I guess the thing that excites me about your book is, as, as many people will know who've gone on and off various forms of medication before, is, is when you do it, certain symptoms come back. But I, I learned mm-hmm. various mm-hmm. Uh, coping strategies and whatever that I've, you know, I still yeah. have that sort of general anxiety that sort of runs through, but I, I'm, I'm successful in spite of it. But what, what, what gets yeah. me excited about your book is it has, uh, and I told you this before, is it has all this new stuff in it that yeah and, and frankly I'm, i was surprised by this because you know anybody who's anxious they they tend to they tend to direct that obsessive energy towards yeah. looking into right. why they're anxious right like <laughs> of course we're going to read 40 right. books on right. this subject. exactly what, what else are we going to do so the fact that there's so much stuff in here that i've never even tried or practiced uh surprised me but makes me really excited uh i just i just finished it uh and so i'm about to start uh putting some of these techniques into play, but if you wouldn't mind, um, maybe we could uh, give a general overview of what some of these uh, techniques are. I mean, the, yes. I don't even know where to start because there's there's so many there's such a wonderful toolkit in here. But I just wanted to right. offer that to you because I have to say I've I've yeah. read a lot of stuff on this, and there's a lot of uh, stuff here that I've never seen before. Well, right. Uh, before I do that, just a quick word about medications. Um, obviously, you want to you want to see a doctor, a specialist in brain chemistry, a psychiatrist, which I did. But there are two things I want the listeners to make sure they understand. I would never recommend medication on its own. Uh, I I would always say if you need medication, go go to a doctor and see and take it. But but also engage in spiritual practices and and 
Christian counseling and good psychological attack this thing from every aspect of your being, mm-hmm. uh, mind, emotion, soul, brain, uh, body, all of it. Uh, the second thing I want to say uh, about uh, medications is if people are listening and they're uh, they're they're against it and and they don't think that Christians should take this or they're skeptical, all I am asking you, if 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 you're there. I'm all, all I'm asking is that you give me a chance. Just please give me a chance. Uh, get to and just give me a chance to persuade you otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I'm asking you to listen with an open mind to the case I make. And if you end up not agreeing, well, okay, we don't agree on it. That's fine. But at least give me a chance. That's all I'm asking. Now, let's go to your question. Um, uh, the main the main thing I want to communicate to our listeners is that um, it it is important to form new habits of thinking and of feeling that um, develop new grooves in your brain and your nervous system and your heart muscle. To replace the old grooves. Now, you might think of these grooves as, as just <clears throat> um, triggers that will trigger negative self-talk, trigger fear, anxiety, and so on. And these, if you suppose you engage in the self-talk, uh, the, what's going to happen to me? The few, oh my gosh, what if this happens? This is going to be absolutely terrible. Or if I go into a crowd, uh, I'm going to get absolutely overwhelmed. I can't get out. I get claustrophobia. Okay, those kind of thoughts now are habits. Uh, they're they're not. They, they don't have anything to do with, with reality necessarily. They're just habits, and they're grooved in the brain. And so, what you have to do to get rid of them is you have to replace those habits with new habits. And so this, the book is about habit formation and techniques under the guidance of the spirit to help you replace your, your anxiety inducing or depressive inducing triggers with peace and joy triggers. And the first exercise is what I call the four step solution. <clears throat> and just briefly, it is a way of learning how to spot uh, almost subconscious negative self-talk that is triggered by 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 the brain habitually that <clears throat> ends up causing anxiety and depression. And then I follow a step, a series of steps that are uh, psychologically sound and I think biblically based to allow you to get rid of this thought and to replace it uh, with uh, thoughts that are half full. So the goal is to to not be half empty anymore, but to be half full or not to be to have triggers that produce anxiety and depression, but to replace them with triggers that produce peace and joy. So the first practice involves what to do with those true thoughts. Uh, the second practice involves how to use your heart muscle, which uh, the Bible says a lot about the heart, and I can't go into this. This is not New Age. I can't stand the New Age. This is a medically discovered fact about the heart that is actually consistent 
with the scriptures and medieval theology. And so I talk about how to use what's going on in your chest area, what emotions and so on are going on there to take anxiety, anxious thoughts or depressive thoughts and feelings and to replace them in your heart, in your chest area with feelings of great warmth and appreciation and peace and, and love and joy. So that's the second technique. The third technique involves a certain kind of prayer uh, that has its as goal, learning to attach to God and connect to him and to sense his presence and to exchange warmth and love uh, with each other. Um, it's not for petitionary prayer or anything else, which is important for other times of praying, but I, I walk through a series of practice steps that I take every day. I did it this morning, uh, and I used to do it two hours a day, but now I'm, I probably do it 45 minutes a day, uh, where I pray uh, for, say, 30 to 40 minutes in the morning and maybe 15 minutes before I go to bed. Mm -hmm. And it's a different form of praying uh, than a lot of people have heard, but it's thoroughly biblical. And it helps you connect with God and to sense his presence and to be to feel his love and warmth and, and to exchange that with him. The final practice is just the practice of learning the art of expressing gratitude to God all day long. And there are certain things you're supposed to do and certain things you don't want to do when you're expressing gratitude. And I talk about that. So those are the four practices. And I talk about how to do develop them as new habits. And after about two months or so, they be, if you do it every day, uh, guess what? You, they become second nature. Mm -hmm. But when you're first practicing them, <laughs> like golf or uh, learning Spanish or uh, whatever you're learning at the piano, you're going to be lousy at it. It's not going to help anything and you're going to be frustrated. But you have to stick with it because after anywhere from 22 days up to say three months, if you stick with it, you'll get good at it. And after a while, it becomes second nature. Yeah. And I think that's such an important point that people have the right expectations like we would if we were starting an exercise program or learning a piano. Yeah. Um, I get it. When you're anxious, you want things to feel better right away. Believe me. Right. <laughs> I'm sure Dr. Oh, yeah. that as well. You just want that. I get it. Quickly as possible. Um, but I fell into this trap so many times where if I didn't find that instant relief, I, I would quit. Uh, and so, yep. you know, you just, you just wind up wasting so much time and suffering for so much longer where if you're just right to be consistent and have that, that patience and let's, let's be, let's be honest. I mean, two months isn't that long in the grand scheme of nope. things. You're going to get two months nope. older anyways, hopefully. Right. So why not? Right. Yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so, I'm, you know I'm with you. I totally agree. Mm -hmm. So yeah, why not, you know, just be consistent for these two months and things might, you know, radically start to to, to change for the better because of that. So I think that's, that's a really important point that, that like, you know, like learning golf or anything else, these are, these are habits that are going to take some time to, to ingrain and establish. Uh, but we can be hopeful that they, that they will pan out. They will change us. Uh, and yes. again, we're not they asking, really will. It's not a five, 10 year thing here. I mean, by the end of summer, no. for example, you could be feeling really good. Yeah. It's implemented. Yeah, and I, I, I can tell you honestly that that's what happened to me. And um, now these practices are just sort of part of what I do. Uh, and I, I, like I used to, 
my big problem was I always would catastrophize or, or worry about the future. And I did a lot of what if thing. And then I would think, oh my gosh, if that happened, it would, and I would make it worse than it would be. And then I'd spend all my time trying to figure out how I could keep it from happening. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? I'll be honest. I, I probably spent 50 something years of my life um, living in the future. And for the last three years, I don't live in the future any longer. My wife will ask me, in fact, she asked me today, um, what, am I, what have I got going next week? And I told her I have absolutely no idea. Um, I, I, I know what I've got going now and today. So I, now I, I still plan. I still look on Sunday at my calendar for the next few weeks to make sure that Monday I'm going to be doing what I need to do to be ready for, let's say, Friday. But then I forget about it. And, I, I, and I've learned to live in the day. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, Pat, also learned not to fight your anxious thoughts and try to reason with them and get rid of them. Um, at, 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 when you first have an anxious thought that you've ever had, that may be a good thing to do. It's called cognitive behavioral therapy. And I think, I think the scriptures would, would indicate that you are to uh, learn how to reason about these and dismiss them. Uh, but after a while, if you've had the thought several times, mm-hmm. if you keep trying to outreason the thought or to figure out why you're having it and to spend your time thinking about it in the hopes that that's going to get rid of it, it actually does the opposite. It digs those grooves in your brain mm. even deeper, and it makes the triggering of that thought much more natural and part of your character. Yep. And so it's harder to get rid of. Uh, so what you have to do is to learn not to get down in the mud with those suckers and and find a way to stop thinking about them. And, and that must and be I have a solution. That must be especially, yeah. I just want to make the note, like that's got to be especially difficult for a philosopher where your job is, <laughs> is the reason, right? <laughs> Dude, you're right. <laughs> Maybe that's why I went into philosophy because I'm so sick, you know, and yeah. broken. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but for the same reason that people might go into psychology or, or what yeah. have you, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, it's, it's no. to yeah. become aware uh, because I, I'm the same way, you know, I want to try and reason everything out and you have these anxious thoughts and i'll sit there i'll be like okay let's let's crack back open the textbook and see why right but isn't that funny you're right you're just you're just kind of energizing that pattern aren't you you're really not just you're not just that's the problem but you're 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 making it worse in some ways even if you think you're reasoning it out because i'm sure as as you'll attest is you can reason something out and have every good reason to to believe this isn't true you shouldn't worry about it but then you keep reasoning it anyways <laughs> exactly that's because at that point it's no longer a cognitive issue or a spiritual issue it's actually now a brain issue mm-hmm. it started off as a, maybe a spiritual or a, some kind of a cognitive or a, a emotional problem and after a while it is still that but it's it's shifted to becoming a biological problem too because remember we are body soul uh unities and so now I've got a problem with my brain that's working against me, and I got to refix that dude by not getting in the mud with that thought because it's counterproductive. And mm-hmm. so I say to people, look, like you pointed out, Pat, why not? Why not try something that that might take 
to the end of the summer or for a few people a little longer, some shorter. And, and so you don't, you don't get stuck in, 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 in the same old patterns that end up not working and making things worse like we've all experienced. I've experienced that. Uh, man, and that's frustrating because you want desperately to get rid of this anxiety or depression and the techniques you're using aren't working. <laughs> They're counterproductive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it's such a funny thing, um, and it's a trap that that I still fall into all the time. So, so having this this system in your book is it has again it really get has gotten me excited, and I can't say I haven't gotten excited over a, a book or or an approach to anxiety in a long time. So, I, uh, again, thank you not only for putting this together, oh, but yeah. chatting about it. The, the one other thing I want to make sure we talk about. Um, yes. that I think is, um, again, both very unique to your book and very important. Uh, you have a beautiful chapter, chapter six, on, on suffering and general healing and frustration and disappointment on the spiritual side. Because yeah. um, some people, I think, you know, maybe, maybe, they're, maybe they consider themselves spiritual but, but not religious or what have you. So, you know, maybe they'll, maybe they'll think, uh, okay, you know, I'll, I'll look at the physical side, I'll do these mental exercises, but do I, do I really need a deeper spiritual or, or religious life there? Um, and if I already do, then how do I deal with suffering and, and healing and, and all that frustration in general? So I just want to kind of give you some space, maybe to, to offer yes. some initial ways to, to think about this. Well, thank you. I, I, I think one of the hardest things uh, for those of us who love the Lord is that when we go through a period of suffering like that, uh, of any sort, and and there are, God could clearly do something about it, and we pray, and it looks like it makes sense that God should step in because number one, it would it would certainly bring healing to one of His children, me, and it would it would really increase my faith. But two. Boy, a lot of people are going to find out about what you did, and it's going to build their faith and lift them up and encourage them, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Mm -hmm. You get more people to pray for something, and when it's answered, you got more people who are encouraged. So, Lord, it looks like this is a great chance for you to step in, and he's a no-show. I mean, he doesn't do anything, Mm -hmm. at least as far as you can tell. And so, I mean, you know, where are you? I mean, I know you're real. I got no question about that. But you just kind of seem to be asleep, and so number one, I do believe in I do believe in healing, and I do believe that some people are more skilled and gifted at this than others. So if you know people in your church that are that have that are especially good at laying on of hands and, and praying healing prayer, go to them and ask for repeated prayer, and do it five or six times or seven or as many as you need. So I do believe in that, but. but if nothing happens, then I think what hap- another problem occurs, and that is that people get frustrated and angry at God, but they don't know what to do with that. Now, you know, every the listener knows that the book of Psalms was actually the hymn book in worship for Israel. That's what they used to, to sing worship and hymns in the congregation. Uh, of the synagogue uh, to God. What people might not realize is uh, about 48 of the 150 Psalms, or something like 30, 30% to 33%, are actually complaints against God. They're called lament Psalms. Mm-hmm. And it's where the psalmist says, you know, 
where are you? You, you? you seem to not be showing up. You don't, you don't seem to honor your covenant with us. Uh, aren't you, don't you notice what's been happening to us and our enemies that don't even love you or tr- are trampling on us and killing our children? Um, uh, so God, you know, why it cut two of the Psalms, uh, of that sort end up with absolutely no resolution at all. It's not like at the end they say, but yet I will praise you. They just end up with the psalmist holding his suffering and there's no answer to it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, these are complaints. They're actual complaints against God. And so what I tell people is, look, it is perfectly legitimate if you're angry at God, because God hasn't helped you with your anxiety and depression in a way that you hunger for and want, tell them what you're thinking. Yell if you have to. Um, uh, um, yell at God. Uh, tell him you don't think he's a, he's very good at this point, or you know you don't think he loves you, or he's not there, or whatever you need to say. And because um, he knows it anyway, and he's not going to be intimidated by it. He loves you. Period. Um, there's no condemnation any longer, so you're not going to be condemned for this. Plus, there's biblical precedent for it. The the, the Lament Psalms do the very same thing. If you if the reader doesn't believe me, Google Lament Psalms and read a few of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you better hold on to your hat and be sitting down before you do. And if you don't believe that, look at some of the prophets and what they say to God. I mean, look at Jeremiah uh, in Lamentations chapter 2 and chapter 3. You're not going to believe what he says. But the point is, tell God, get it off your chest. Now, are, are you insane? Of course. We're, I mean, we're all crazy if we say that God's not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Because that's not true. I don't mean we're really insane. But I mean, of course that's not true. But you don't act at the point when you're suffering, uh, Pat, you don't actually believe God is good or that God hears and answers prayer that he cares you really believe that he's utterly indifferent. That's what you really believe, though you wouldn't verbalize that. Mm-hmm. So what you ought to do is just say what you're thinking and feeling and be honest about it, because this becomes a healing exercise that will get you back to the point to where you do, in fact, trust God again and realize that you were wrong and you actually come to believe the, the things about God that are true. And so I explain how to do that, uh, the different ways uh, uh, that, that we can complain. Uh, and I, I want to help my, my brothers and sisters realize that disappointment with God is something that in anxiety and depression, we all, we, a lot of times we have to face that too. Mm-hmm. And we have to find healthy ways to deal with it. Wow. I mean, this is... Uh... Such an important book, and you know, uh, again, something I can relate to. We're praying, we're praying. Maybe we don't think that, that God's hearing us, or He's indifferent. But I think, uh, in, in a very special way, uh, your book and this conversation is an answer to to my prayers about this. We recently went through a move. My anxiety has has been uh, quite a bit elevated because of that. So I've been praying on this, and then yeah, what what comes on my screen? But finding quiet by by Doctor Moreland. So yeah, you know, I'll be there. That's amazing. You know, so I think just, uh, you know, maybe uh, keeping a wider perspective, too, and, and, and maybe uh, uh, thinking, okay, you know, maybe God has been answering my prayers, uh, just maybe not always in the way yes. that I'm expecting either. Um, I certainly believe that's the case with our conversation here. Of course. 
can't thank you enough. Now, where is the best place? Because I want to make sure everybody gets a copy of this book. I can't recommend it enough. I'll link it in the show notes, but is there a, a special yes. page you would want people to go to? Where, where can yeah, no, I think, mm-hmm. no, I think just going on Amazon.com. Um, and uh, the reviews have been just uh, just so moving and touching. There's one review where a guy's really mad at me because I recommend medications, uh, and I just you know I just differ with him. But uh, uh, go on Amazon. I think that's the best place to get it. And uh, I hope and prayer is that this this book will continue to be uplifting and hope inducing and helpful to people because it sure has been to me. Yeah. And I, again, I can't give it a strong enough endorsement. It has got me excited um, to begin practicing a number of these these methods. So uh, um, again, a million things I could talk to you about, but I think this has been a, a real enriching conversation. Uh, thanks again for taking the time, Dr. Morris. Well, you're welcome. And let's do it again sometime, Pat. Maybe we could talk uh, down the road about something else. I'd love to be back on your show. We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mafud. Good day.